Well, good morning, everybody. It's a good day to be here as we begin a new sermon series. The new sermon series we're entitled, entitling The Fight of Your Life. We'll be looking at the, each, each Sunday here in the month of June, we'll be looking at a fight, a uh, fight for your spouse, a fight for your kids, the fight for your heart or your character, and the fight for your friends. And we really are tailoring these to everybody. We hope each and every Sunday you'll have something that you can derive from this, something that can... Um, Convict you, challenge you, enrich your life, and that you will learn uh, from it. The fight of your life. Last night, or yesterday afternoon, I stood here and married Justin and Brianna. We stood right here, and I quoted James chapter 4 and verse 1. It's about fighting, because if you marry couples, you know what they're going to do. They're going to go to a honeymoon and have a lot of fun, and then they're going to start fighting, right? James chapter 4, verse 1, ask a question. It's a really important question. We really need to get to the heart of it. It says, what causes fights, there we go, fights and quarrels among you? And you're thinking that other person, they're the one, right? That quarrelsome character. Don't the fights and quarrels among you, don't they, we'll go ahead and get into the root of it, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Look, honestly, some of us are weary. We're just worn out from fighting. In fact, one leader of the early church, that early movement of Jesus followers, he said that if someone, a man or woman, is going to lead in the church, they ought not to be quarrelsome. If you aspire to leadership and you're quarrelsome, God loves you. There's a place for you here, just not in leadership. So are you a fighter? Is it by nature? Do your desires get the best of you and you love to fight? You take the gloves off or fight with them on and you're punching. You're quarrelsome. You love to fight. Listen, this is not a sermon series to talk about the people that you fight with because that's our problem. Some of us the most important people in our lives, we fight with them. But there's a challenge I hope to set before you this month of June to fight for. Instead of fighting with the most important people in your life, you're going to be challenged to fight for them. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12 on the screen. Be strong and let us what? Fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in His sight. Now, honestly... That was a time, that was an era where there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of bloodshed. But I I believe it's in the heart of God for you and I today to be fighters. God has made us to fight. And hear me, he's given us the spiritual weapons to do so. So this morning, I want to talk to you in the balance of this sermon about fighting for your spouse. It's a sermon for everybody because most people hear the whole sentence now. Most people are married or will get married or have been married or love some folks who are married. That's a good enough reason. That includes kind of everybody. But listen, there's a mandate, okay? And there's a metaphor in the Bible of Christ and his church. And so we all need to understand more about marriage. Friday, just two days ago, June the 1st, at 2 o'clock, I went for a run. Some of you, I think, saw me. These pale bird legs were running Fondren, Eastover area. And it was a long, hot, stupid run on my part. And I couldn't wait to get back home because we've got a little swimming pool. It's brand new. It's in our backyard. I couldn't wait to get home. When I ran past the district, you know, the new district at Eastover, I thought, I can make it here and I can go up to the third floor. I can talk. I'm not a resident, but I can trespass. I'm kind of good at that. And I can get up to the third floor. I can jump in their swimming pool. I can't make it home to mine. But I hung in there, I ran the frontage road past St. Andrew's Lower School, on into Fondren, on into our place, and when I got home, 
due to a confluency of complex issues with how many people live in our house and who has garage door openers and where we put the keys and the vehicles, I realized that I was locked out. I couldn't get to the pool. Now, it was, I was aching for it. I was thirsting for it. It wasn't just for my sanity. It could have really probably saved my life. I was, it, was, it was tough. And I thought, okay, you know, I prayed prayers and watched my language and everything. And I was locked out of my swimming pool. And then I found a way around to jump in, to get back in the backyard and to jump in. And what a cool oasis that I think saved my life. Oh, the refreshment. And for some of our single friends here, your view of life is like my run on Friday. And you're thinking it's long and it's hot and it's hard. And the thing waiting on me at the end is marriage. And the only thing to bring me refreshment is someone. Some man or some woman. And can I tell you today that if Jesus were here and he was involved in our church, which would be a great deal, but if he was, probably free me up in a lot of ways. But if Jesus were here and involved, he would be involved most likely in our single young adult ministry. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so we want to attach value to everybody. You're not any less if you're not married, okay? You're not any less. And don't buy into the myth or to the lie that there's some cool drink at the end of this run, okay? Now, we want what's God, what, what is best for you, but don't buy into that myth. There are experts say, our friends Tim and Joy Downs have taught us, and I like to put, put this at the forefront, there are four stages to marriage, all right? If you're married, you're going to be a little bit convicted here. The first stage is romance, okay? And the romance stage, you get this, it's flowers and candy, it's candlelight dinners, it's handwritten love letters and half-hour kisses. It's the heart palpitations. It's the tingles. It's the shivers. It's the weak, wobbly knees. It's just so enticing, and it's easy, and it's fresh, and it's new. It's romance. But not long thereafter, or slowly thereafter, the stage of romance yields itself to the stage of reality. Candlelight dinners get replaced many times with hot dogs and macaroni and cheese on paper plates. And this is the reality of probably doing dishes, taking out the trash, bouncing checks, paying the mortgage, working through career, career struggles and time pressures and bill payments. This is when his hairline starts receding and his waistline expanding. And you can watch her, the skin under her arms gets loose and flabby as it does with some women. And you go through a variety of struggles, family issues and emotional problems. I've probably created some right now. <laughs> this is just trying to be real because it's the reality phrase, stage rather. This is the stage where it's easy for a couple. In fact, Researchers, experts say that this is a stage when couples either ignore these problems or they stay busy and avoid these problems or they say, I want to find somebody else. And this can lead to the third stage, the resentment stage. And in the resentment stage, you go from how can I live without this person to how do I get rid of this person? Hopefully not in the Dateline NBC way. But you're looking to get rid of, you're looking to get out of the relationship. It leads to the fourth and final stage. It's the stage of rebellion. And it can be very ugly. This rebellion stage, it says, hey, 
I'm not going to believe God anymore. I'm not going to take him at his word. I'm taking this into my own hands. This is about me and my own happiness. So here are the four stages of marriage. Long ago, Jesus said, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 19, he said these words that the two become one flesh. The two become one. Often marriage disintegrates into a which one? Where one asserts themselves, the other does. And it is James 4.1, the source of quarrels and fights. It is those selfish desires that rage within, that explodes without. Two become one flesh. Jesus gives the picture of that. We'll get a little deeper into it in a moment. Recently, a CNN article chronicled through stories and particularly statistics Stories go to the heart, statistics go to the head, and they talked about what they defined as a marriage apocalypse. Did any of you see this recent article from CNN? And I won't bore you, uh, preachers do this with the statistics of what's happening in marriage, but it's amazing, and it's amazing that we have a whole new generation who are products of divorce who are holding off on the institution. It's greeted with tremendous skepticism and cynicism. It is a marriage apocalypse. A couple of weeks ago, I spent some time with a new African-American friend of mine. He also is a pastor. And he talked about his community and his concerns about his community. And he talked about this reality that if there's brokenness in the white community regarding marriage, it's so much significantly higher in the african-american community it's understandable though inexcusable to think about slavery in our nation's history and how slavery divided families how on the auction block that dads were separated dads would be sent to one state and moms to another and children would be fanned out and this new friend of mine was talking about his community and the burden there, and the plight of it, and how slavery still stains our nation. There is a book written by Dr. Richard Banks, a professor at Stanford University, and he asked the question, is marriage just for white people? Noting that the African-American community is the least likely to marry and the most likely to divorce. Sociologists and researchers tell us you don't have to be a person of faith, any creed, color, religion to hear this fact. Sociologists tell us that the health of a society is related to the state of its families. God cares. He cares about what he instituted. Do you know this? God has, he ordained three institutions. Can you name them? The government, the church, and the family. And God desires for us to think anew, to think afresh about this reality of marriage. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 19. We will put the verses up in just a minute, Matthew chapter 19. But some of you love to have a scripture in front of you to uh, follow along. I admire that, respect that. There is one, let's go there in just a second. There is a, 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 another reality that I want to talk to you about. It's the extension of adolescence. Now, adolescence, one writer defines as uh, loving the privileges of adulthood, but not the responsibilities. Isn't that good? 
The privileges, only the women are smiling and nodding, okay? You'll, you'll find out. You already know why, but I'll, I'll drop some facts on you. But it's, you want the privileges of adulthood, but none of the responsibilities. And Matthew McConaughey, uh, I get a lot of comparisons. Matthew McConaughey starred in a movie years ago called Failure to Launch. And because it was such a handsome guy, it was sort of, it was a cute movie, right? But unfortunately, it's a disturbing, in fact, depressing reality in our day. In this movie, Failure to Launch, 10 or 12 years ago, we saw it. He plays a 30-something-year-old man who refuses to move out of his parents' house. His mom is, I mean, he's devoid of ambition. His mom is cooking for him and doing his laundry. And he seems to be clueless about his parents, their, their secret of how they're growing resentful toward him. And they hope, they long for him to find some sort of passion and move out of their house. So they hire a personal interventionist by the name of Sarah Jessica Parker to enter into Matthew McConaughey's world. This guy who was experiencing this failure to launch and she was to motivate him to see the world differently so that he would take root and spread wings and actually spread rings. He would learn a passion, be rooted in a passion so that he could spread wings and he could go out as he should. They're telling us that adolescence today in America, particularly among men, is extending uh, into the mid-30s. To translate that, a lot of boys aren't becoming men. And the effects on marriage and family are so very destructive. One comedian put it this way. Boys play house, men make homes. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, Jesus is, um, in Matthew 19 and verse 3, the religious leaders come to him and they ask him a question. The Pharisees, there they are, they came up to him and they tested him, that's what they did. They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This was a trick question. It was a testy one. Now let me explain the background of this. At the time of Jesus, there were two different camps. Okay, So the heart of the inquiry relates to a standing debate between different uh, streams of Jewish thought. On one end of the spectrum, one stream of Jewish thought at the time was the, the Rabbi Shemaiah. And Shemaiah taught simply, uh, going back to the beginning, that marriage, that there was really no reason except for uh, infidelity, except for being unfaithful, particularly sexually unfaithful in a marriage. That was, would be the only reason, only grounds for divorce. But there was also, on the other end of the spectrum, a stream of Jewish thought called the School of Hillel. And in the School of Hillel, there, it was a liberal and progressive stream of thinking where, hey, the man who had the rights and the privileges could divorce the woman for any and every reason. If she disrespected him, if she wore a bun in her hair, just kidding, I made that up. If she, if she was heard by the neighbors from outside the house, if she spoke too loud, if she burned dinner, whatever it might be, he could divorce her for any of those grounds. So they come to Jesus, this volatile question, testing him. Now, some of you know this, when Jesus was tested, when he was questioned, 
He responds with brilliance. Many times it was another question. And uh, even I, as somewhat of a theologian and scholar, I find myself scratching my head going, what, 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 Jesus, what do you mean there? And then I dig a little deeper. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's so smart. Like that's brilliant as you get into the history and context of it all. That was usually his case. There's a common phrase, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is ushering in a new system of righteousness. He's changing the entire scorecard. He's saying, you thought it was this, but let me tell you, it's fresh and new. Mostly, that's what Jesus did. But what does he do here in Matthew 19? When the Pharisees question him, he goes back to Genesis and the origins of marriage. He unashamedly chooses a side in this debate. Nothing new. He goes back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Here's his response in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Unashamedly, as I said, he takes a side. Introducing this idea where society was being hurt and women in particular were being put down and discarded. Now when a woman was divorced so readily and so easily in those days, it's not like today in American society, though painful. The, most women had to live a life of prostitution. It's the way that it was then. And Jesus is saying, let's go back. Now notice there's a trace of sarcasm in this. There's one point in, this, in Matthew chapter 9, he says, hey, haven't you read, right, haven't you read? He's going back to it all, and he's saying this new thing, this new thing that has been created by men and women's sin, particularly men, this new thing is not a good thing. This happiness approach, this utilitarian approach, where in particular men are seen as deity and women as less than humanity, that hurts society. It is not a good thing. And Jesus goes back to the origins of it all. He's basically saying to us that marriage is not the product of two people test driving each other to see if they can make each other happy. But it is a sovereign union between husband and wife yoked together by a holy God. And can I just say, this is a game changer. This changes the game. It's changed the game for us. It's entirely changed the game. That there is something more than her making me happy. She's not a cook. She's not a maid. She's not an object. She's a friend and a bride and an equal with me. And we walk this road together. And nothing, it's two becoming one and nothing is to separate us. That's God's intention. Not a test drive. Okay? And what, what I won't drop on you, I've done it before, I won't drop on you today the statistics that show that test driving is not working well in our society in relationships. The try before you buy thing, the non-committal approach, it's furthering the adolescence. Boys are staying boys and not becoming men. And Jesus says, it's a sovereign unit. He had the chance to redefine marriage. He had the chance to capitulate and acquiesce to what was happening in front of him. But he went back to the origins of it all, to the heart of God. Marriage did not originate in the mind of man, but in the heart of a heavenly father. And we move forward. We move forward. It's changed the game for us. 
It's helped us to learn to leave and to cling and to cling to each other and to see that it's not just about our personal happiness. At times it is, but sometimes it's not. But it's ultimately all about His glory. That our marriage, and if you're married, that yours would be up on a hill and it would be a poster. One of my favorite writers says that we need marriage posters. You know what a poster is? It's like it's right before you and it's a good example. You know this, right? It's hurt. It hurts today to realize we don't have many good marriage posters of people that we can look at and say, there you go. There you go. They're going back to the origins of it. And they view their marriage as God views it. It's not two people taking a test drive, seeing if they can make each other happy. Think of the needs that you bring into marriage. I want to be admired. I want to be desired. I want to be respected. I want to be pampered. I want to be protected. I want to be prioritized. I want to be cherished. I want to be loved. And you and I have a Savior who is ultimately our need meter. A famous book was written. A lot of you know this. I would recommend it. It's in my top ten. A book called Love and Respect. What's great about this book, there's several derivatives out there now. That's what you do in America when you've got a best-selling book. You spin off several others, right? But Love and Respect is a book that talks about the fundamental needs of a man and a woman, both equal in God's eyes, both have the same worth and value, but are created differently. And that a woman primarily has a deep need for love, romantic love. That's why... Women early in marriage become disillusioned when they go from the romance stage to the reality stage. It's hard on women for that to happen. Men, when you stop doing what you used to do because you got her. So women primarily need love. Men primarily need respect. Men, you know that's true. You're at your best when you're respected. You're at your worst when you're disrespected. And what happens, the writer of this book, he says that when a a woman doesn't feel loved, she withdraws the respect. When a man doesn't provide love, romantic love, there's a loss. One's not meeting the need of the other. The other withdraws, the other ignores, the other gets busy. And they're in what the writer calls in love and respect a crazy cycle. And it could be you today. A crazy cycle. Well, what do you do? What do you do in a crazy cycle? The writer of Scripture says that one person, one person has to go. One person has to step out. One person has to throw away the scorecard and say, even though, I know, look, I know this is hard. I know this is hard. But stay with me for a second. It's my role to preach the truth, not to make everybody feel good. But when one person says, I'm going to throw away the scorecard, and I'm going to love, and I'm going to meet their needs, even if they're not fully meeting mine now, that's the only way to break the crazy cycle. Where did he get that idea from? Anybody have any idea? Anybody have any idea? Where did he get that from? Write down, note taker, write down Philippians chapter 2. I don't have it up, but Jesus came from heaven to earth. He gave himself up. Being God, he became man. And we were told this church that was seeking to preserve unity amidst its diversity, it was told to do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. In fact, to think 
put others first before yourself. And that's how you can break the crazy cycle if you're in it today. To fight for your spouse. Here's what Susan and I've learned. Susan and I have learned that we don't have to think alike. But we need to think together. Susan and I have learned that we will disagree. But we can disagree and hold hands. Yes. At the same time. And that's the call to learn to meet these deep needs for love and for respect. Jesus takes us back. Jesus teaches us that the way forward, yea, even in this society, because we're not doing good, if CNN, a thoroughly secular institution, says there's a marriage apocalypse, okay, we're not doing well, are we? And sometimes the best way forward is to look back and to look to the origin, the inventor, the originator, the the architect of it all. And Jesus teaches. Look at Matthew 19, 5 and 6. He says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father. You, You all know this. He should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let nobody separate. Jesus teaches. The best thing for women. The best thing for men. The best thing for kids. The best thing for any society is to look back. Marriage is God's idea, and it's best if you do it His way. In our fight, we've learned a lot. We've learned some really important things, and I want to share with you two that are helping us in our fight. Helping us to love each other, for her to meet my needs of respect and me to meet her needs of love, romantic love. There's a couple of traps that we fall into that we identified early, early in our marriage when I was hurting her and she was hurting me or we weren't meeting those needs. We were reminded painfully of our sin and our flaws and our brokenness. And you have them, don't you? The first is the trap of what I call the trap of looking around. And this is when we compare. It's comparison. And can I tell you that comparison is not healthy. And it's only getting worse, and it's only getting worse. And we're raising a whole new generation of kids who are comparing themselves somewhere between 400 and 1,000 times every week through their tablets, their phones, through social media. And comparison is the trap of looking around. And I know that I'm not much to live with when I'm looking around and I'm not wanting my life. I've got nothing to give her. I've got nothing to give. Like, I'm not somebody else. I'm not Chip Henderson. This ain't Pine Lake Church. I'm not so-and-so. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm me, and I need to be me, and I need to stop looking around and comparing my life, and I need to be fully present with who I am and how God has made me and the gifts he's given me and tackle the challenges and put the gloves on and be a man to fight the fight that God puts in front of me. Proverbs 14.30 says this. A heart at peace gives life to the body. But the trap of comparison, the trap of looking around, it says envy. It rots the bones. It won't lead you to a good life. Single or married, if you're comparing yourself, you're not at peace. 
If you're always looking over on the other side and you're not watering the garden that God has given you, the relationships in your life, you're moving toward resentment. You're moving toward rebellion. Isaiah 30 and verse 15, one of my favorite passages of old from the great major prophet Isaiah. He says this, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. But notice the rebellious people, but you would have none of it. We are learning through trial and error that the greatest gift we can give each other in marriage is time not with each other, but time with our Savior. Man, when she's walking with the Lord, when she knows that she's loved and valued and forgiven by a holy, sovereign God, what a gift that is to me. But when she doesn't feel that, when she doesn't know or experience that, when she's not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, then all that is placed on me, and guess what? I can't bear the weight of that. I'm not a savior. I'm a spouse. And look at the stubbornness of people. Look at the promise. Repentance. Rest. That's where our strength has got. Quietness. Trust. That's where salvation and strength is. Let us not be stubborn, rebellious people that reject it. Let's receive it. It's a heart at peace. It's not falling into the trap of looking around. And while I think you need a marriage poster, if you're struggling out or if you're young today, look, if you're young today, I'm laughing at you. Because I know you're out there. I'm looking at some of you. I married a lot of you. You're young and you're good looking. All right. Like I was young once. You're broken and flawed and sinful and you don't have a clue. And I'm not going to stand up here and take a lot of time to rain on your parade. Okay. But this is God's idea. And it's best done his way. And the person you're sitting next to. It's not two people test driving to see if you can make each other happy. And if you're young and in marriage today, you need someone. I pray that Fondren would grow with more of these. But that you would have a marriage poster here in this faith family that you could look at some people and say, there you go. They've gone through a lot. They're faithful to each other. We can be like them. And so in, in a way, you would look around and you would see, but you wouldn't compare And you wouldn't want what somebody else has. But you would spend the time to water the garden that is your own. The second trap is not just the trap of looking around. It's the trap of tearing down. While the trap of looking around is is comparison, the trap of tearing down is conflict. And this is the one skill. It's the one skill that makes or breaks a marriage. Romans 14, 19 says the following. It's to all believers. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Don't be intimidated by those two words, mutual edification. That means that you build people up. That you live with and learn. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. And it goes on to, to offend a lot of people in the room, a lot of women, and I hate that it does. It says that she's to be regarded and loved as a weaker vessel. Why in the world would Peter say that? That's just like a bomb in today's society. 
Going back to the original Greek of the New Testament, that word there gives us the idea of what is precious and what is cherished. Not weak in a less than way, but weak in a precious way, in a handle with care way. And I'm called to live with her, to continue to study her, to hold her up high. We can... We can disagree, but we do it while we're holding hands. We don't always think a lot. Are you kidding me? A young lady from Palos Verdes, California, and a dude from Starkville, Mississippi. Like, there's a lot that we don't have in common. There's a a lot of things that we don't see uh, eye to eye. California, the land of fruit and nuts, right? Just a lot of things that we're different at. The Mississippi and California, our temperament is, is different. Our outlook at times can be different. The way we were brought up, has we've collided at times. And though we disagree, we can do it holding hands. And what we've learned is that we can't compare our lives and our marriage with others. It leads to envy. And what does envy do? The scripture tells it. Doctors can tell you this. Stress-related ailments. It rots the bones. It's not a life, a piece of shalom. And when we spend our time in fights and quarrels, tearing each other down. I love to see the church be the church. Several years ago, a couple came to see us, and they couldn't stop fighting. And in some ways, it reminded me of of my marriage early on at times. Susan was young and had a lot to learn. But anyway, they were fighting badly. And I remember... Uh, being busy at the time and being so glad to, to have them in front of us. But I, I, I turned them over. I released them to another couple in our church who have been there. And now to see these four become such dear friends and to see this couple take this other couple in their, under their wings and to talk about quarreling and fighting and learning the skill set of how to, how to love how to be unified and how to meet the deepest need of the other person and when there's a vacuum or a void when it's not being met how to sacrifice and to go first to move in that direction a quarterback who played football at my alma mater was recently become the new high school football coach at St. Joe and some folks were talking on Twitter a couple days ago and a former coach at my alma mater said that this guy John Bond is going to win. He's going to win at St. Joe because he can relate to players and he'll be able to, listen, he'll be able to teach them to sacrifice. And I thought about that. I circled that. And I thought, you know, any coach, there's some of you here today, any coach, any leader knows that in order to win, there must be sacrifice. If there's not sacrifice in a church, I would say all the more. If we're not a place where people give and invest the time and finances and spiritual giftedness to sacrifice for the greater good, for the cause of the gospel, we won't be healthy. God won't flourish us and bring us life to spill over to others, to our neighborhood and to the nations. And so it is true in a team, any team environment. And I'm telling you, it is oh so true in marriage. So... When's the last time you made a sacrifice? Would you stand with me? Our team is going to come up and 
I want to ask you to bow with me as you stand. I'm going to say a prayer over us and extend to us a time of invitation where our prayer altar is open, where a few of us are down front ready to embrace you, to pray with you, to pray over you. And it could be one of those days, especially married folks, that you're just going to not walk down front because you don't want everybody to think you got something wrong in your marriage. Today doesn't have to be that. It doesn't. It can be. I would say put aside your pride. But it doesn't have to be that. We want this time to be a time where God is honored. And this, for these few moments, is a place of prayer. So bow your heads and let me pray over you now. Father, I thank you for the metaphor of husband and wife and Christ in the church. And we could even see your wisdom as we look at societies today and around the world. And we see communities where the family is being decimated, where marriage is not held high. And there are shock waves and tremors. It doesn't bode well. But Lord, I thank you for the picture of marriage, of Christ and the church, of one who gave himself up for the other. And that's the call for us, for our single friends who are precious and dear to you and precious and dear in the life of our church. I pray that they would not buy into the lie or the myth that they are less Lord, would you grant grace to all? To marriages that have been reduced to reality, resentment, rebellion. Lord, I pray for healing and help. And Lord, I stand before hundreds of people this morning and I can't think of a rich marriage that I know where a man and a woman at some point didn't seek help, didn't reach out, didn't say, here's a problem and we can't ignore it. Together, on bended knee, we bring this to you. Receive our prayers now, Jesus. In you we pray.